0: This week on uh, Flux of Seagals, we tackle 2008's Pistol Whipped. An interesting turn in the uh, trajectory of Seagal, where uh, he. Um, <laughs> Great hook. Stadonian. <coughs> on this week's episode. On this week's episode of Flux of Seagals, we watch Pistol Whipped from 2008, featuring uh, a uh, somewhat surly, darker version of uh, Seagal, which uh, ends up being surprisingly refreshing. Pistol Whipped. <laughs> we'll, we'll get it. Third science time. Third time, we'll get it. <laughs> <coughs> we
1: still the that in the cough.
0: On this week's episode of Flock of Seagal's, we watch 2008's Pistol Whipped, featuring Seagal as a sort of a bad lieutenant-type character, the Harvey Keitel one, not the Nicolas Cage one, unfortunately. Yeah.
2: Good? That's good, yeah. that good, Let's, go. let's, let's I've gone, keep it going. I've got an idea. Yeah. On this episode of Flock of Seagal's, Riley, Tony, and Mike watch Pistol Whip. I misread the chat and thought we were watching it live. No. Oh, no. So this is actually going to be really fun because you're going to (laughs) describe this movie to me. And I'm going to kind of roll in this. And I basically, this is going to be an exercise in your storytelling abilities because I really (sighs) want to hear about this movie now.
1: That's why you said midnight. I was like, midnight? (laughs) That's forever away.
2: (laughs) Oh, no. So, okay. I think this could be an interesting dynamic. <laughs> Cause like I just like basically I just wanted to... I'm actually kind of really excited about this. I wish
1: I could be you right now, to be honest. <laughs>
2: you really didn't watch it, eh? No, I misread the chat. I thought we were doing the live. Thing, I thought so, so too
1: last week. And then you're like, no, you're an idiot. Here's the link. Watch it now.
2: Yeah. I understand why you three may be disappointed me right now, but like I just want to be told about this movie because like this is going to be like a live Wikipedia article.
1: <laughs> it, it might actually be a good dynamic because then an audience but, who hasn't watched it, you're kind of representing the audience.
2: Yeah. Like, it's just like I, and you know, like I can ask audience, ask questions that the audiences might be interested to know. I don't think it's going to make that much of a difference to me. honest. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I will pull up the Wikipedia article.
3: No, okay. we will describe it to you. Okay. Oh, Thusly. so uh, pistol whipped
0: director. Some funny facts about him. Oh, Uh, Dutch born. uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Roel Rene.
1: Uh,
0: Sometimes using the alias. I like this one a lot. John Rebel. Nice. So he's definitely like the king of like unnecessary sequels. He did Death Race 3 Inferno. Uh, starring uh, Luke Goss of Killing Salazar fame. <laughs> uh, he also did Hard Target Two. Okay. And oh, here's the best one though: uh, Scorpion King Three: Battle for Redemption, starring this is good Ron Perlman and Billy
3: Zane. Ron Perlman? What? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. no. That yeah. sounds like, like their actual Battle for Redemption. It's in just the I'm like, yeah. we can do it. Here's yeah. the thing, like, come on, guys. Billy Zane. That's the level
2: he's at. I have to accept that. Ron Perlman, though, no,
0: it's weird. Like when you think about like uh, like Hellboy and like Drive, like seems like his career is doing all right. Mm -hmm. I
2: think Uh, Sons of Anarchy, which ran forever. No, I think that Ron Perlman is just one of those actors. He just likes doing work.
3: Although, when did that happen? Because this is two thousand eight, and I was checking because this whole film Pistol Whipped seems like someone. And it's erroneous because it came out the same year as the first Iron Man. It seems like someone watched every single Marvel, like sort of origin story, and was like, what if we did every single origin story at once? Hmm. Like a tragic killing of a partner. My daughter's in trouble. Need to get back together with my ex-wife. Want to prove myself to this guy who's also in a position of power towards me, secret CIA operative. Like the the list goes on and on and on about all these reasons as to why Steven Seagal has to do one thing in this movie. So I guess my initial question is: This is 2008.
2: So where are we in the stages of Seagal? This is obviously very post his fame, but are we in the are we yet in the territory where he's like making himself like a friend of ultra nationalist states in Western Europe? I feel like that's like
3: a pretty Eastern Europe. recent thing, eh? I'd say that's
2: probably like the last five years.
3: So I think it's 2011 or 2012 in which he wanted to be an ambassador of Russia to California. And the Obama administration said no. So that was our first sort of inkling that. That actually happened? Yeah. Yeah. No. That is something that somebody in a government office received an email. <laughs> and was like, ah. Uh,
1: and then they had to like give real reasons.
3: I guess I have to afford this to Barbara. Like, I don't want to bother, bother her. She just got back from mat leave. This seems stupid. But like, if we don't say something about it, Segal's camp is going to say something about it. He didn't really have a resume. He just attached
2: a video clip of him shooting the head off a match. <laughs> Funny, you should say Which that. What happens
1: in this movie. Yeah. And that's actually one of the reasons I was sure you'd watched it.
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> Listen, I, I understand I've let you all down today. Oh no. But I just wanted to let you know I'm here for all of you and I'm as enthused as I normally am. Another interesting thing about this film, uh, it's actually written by the same guy that wrote Ronin,
0: The John Frankenheimer oh. film.
2: With like Robert De Niro yeah. and uh, Jean Reno. Yeah. Oh my God. And like. You said written by?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, th- this could be an example of like uh, directors and writers that combo being uh, like you, resulting in a very different uh, product. Just because, I mean, like, if you put Pistol Whipped next to Ronin, you'd be like, there's no, not, not a single person. Even the caterer was different. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, I, th- I thought that was an interesting fact.
3: I don't know why. I just assumed. No one wrote this film, and it came like sort of miraculously out of the ground.
1: Showed up and was like, "I want to do a film," and they're like, "Well, we know the whole movie has to be about how you're the best and everyone loves you, and you have the biggest dick." There was actually like a comment.
3: Oh yes, there is. Oh yeah. So yeah, no, no. This this film has sort of like a. It is very much like an origin story for a Marvel character. It's like, here's this guy who he's down on his luck. An th- interested third party is going to play on his vice to make him into a character that's more than himself, even though he'll still have that vice that will come back in the final act of this, which it doesn't, obviously.
1: Which is but, also the first scene. <laughs>
3: which, is also, which is something else we have to discuss, because not only is the first scene part of the last scene of the movie, but it is done in reverse. So, like the first forty-five seconds of this film is like just a little cut-up teaser trailer of all the things you're going to see. Mm. But there's a part in the the very opening shot is Steven Seagal shooting, and then like shooting behind his back, and then turning and ducking behind a foam uh,
1: gravestone. A
3: grave, yeah, like a gravestone. But when you watch it, you notice that the shells are going back into his gun, and that the smoke is coming out they've run it in reverse for some reason, and then it all goes from that to him confessing something, uh, confessing to something in a church, and so you assume that that is a flashback to something that's already happened, but it's not. It's just a little teaser.
2: Stay tuned, folks. You guys watch... uh, You you watch Steven Seagal's Memento.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What One thing that really really caught me in the first scene just visually it was like how a chunk of the gravestone breaks off and you can tell how like cheaply foam it is. Oh, yeah. And then that chunk breaks in half in midair air before falling that the-
3: is an amazing thing like someone mistimed one of the squibs or they weren't expecting that part to come off with the other part because there's a, part, there's a piece of rubble of a gra- gravestone that comes off it's been shot off and then it's behind the gravestone that it was just a second ago part of and then it gets shot again <laughs> through a mythical i mean like a jfk level bullet of just kerning around corners yeah. and hitting this thing a second it, time. Here's the thing with that, the flashback, flash forward nature of this editing.
2: You can do that whole back into the left sequence from JFK. <laughs>
0: yeah. Here's one funny thing that I noticed about the uh, like opening titles. The font size for the actors' names was the same as the title of the film. Oh. And so it's like, it's coming up. And then, you know, it's like Steven Seagal and then it's pistol whipped, but it's exactly (laughs) the same.
1: Who is pistol whipped?
0: Exactly. And it's just like, like, I'd never seen that
2: before. I actually have seen that very recently. Really? Because i rewatched Blade Runner and that's the exact same. Huh. Yeah. Though the title Blade Runner is in red, but it's the same font size. I'm guessing that in Blade Runner,
0: it wasn't... uh, the meme font impact. Like it was. Oh, it's Pistol impact.
3: Way. Yeah. That's,
0: yeah. That's, another, that's, that's another thing. And I, I, I saw that and I was like, no way. And then I actually pulled up the font to make sure that I was right. <laughs> I'm just
2: going to commission our listeners right now to make us a bunch of really good lol Seagal memes.
0: Yeah. yeah. So I guess we open up with uh, Seagal in, I guess like a, an
3: underground casino. Well, did we talk about him talking to the priest? There's the priest a priest. Being oh, yeah. him, like, you're a hopeless hum- human being.
1: But he loves him.
3: Yeah, but come back anytime. time. That's the thing I love about you, father. You can see some worth in a degenerate like me. I just loved how it started. And it was
1: just so obviously the priest explaining to the audience who Steven Seagal's character is. Mm. He was like, you are this guy. You are this guy. You've done these things. And then, if your eyes were closed, it would just seem like he's reading the character description.
3: And <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, to make it even less interesting, the character's name is Matt. So it just sounds like he's chiding like a, a disrespectful boy in church. Yeah. Matt, you, you're gambling on the horses. You're doing like you set up all the character flaws that we're supposed to organically sort of discover over time, but uh, that doesn't happen. And then we go <laughs> to our first casino scene and the first thing that i think like betrays the fact that Segal's shooting team probably got clearance to shoot in a three block radius and they had to do the whole film in that because this casino is clearly the lobby to a hotel hmm. that they have cut off with robes <laughs> because there's like just a three set up two set up casino tables and then a old timey sort of uh, Art Deco candy shop, which has does not does not happen in any casino that has ever happened in yeah. the history. Like, there's no fanciful candy shop.
1: I don't know what casinos you're going to, but probably not. The good <laughs> you're
3: going to ones that are set up in the back, like sixty fourth of a of a hotel. Yeah, <laughs> like they couldn't even rent out like the full sort of event room it's like you can have the back lobby that normally is just for deliveries. (laughs) and Seagal is of course he is because this is 2008 and everything Seagal does is about two hours delayed or two years delayed he is playing Texas Hold'em in a very very intense game
2: oh this actually wouldn't have been too long after Texas Hold'em peaked
3: and I'm trying to think when did Casino Royale that was 06 06 so yeah two years I remember they made a like leading up to that movie, they made a
2: deal about the fact that they changed the card game from baccarat to Texas Hold'em. Was it just
1: me that felt like that was the most boring poker scene ever? Though
2: I don't watch many poker
3: scenes. I like I don't have a lot to compare it to. <laughs>
1: I just I, maybe no poker scene is exciting. But
3: well, no, they can shoot it in an exciting way. But the way they shot it and the way they shoot a lot of things in this movie, Michael, maybe you can speak more of this. Is they got like. They knew they only had like from eight to five to shoot on specific days because there are like one, maybe two master shots and then three or four GoPros going around and they just keep slicing in footage of Mm. in between those. Like anytime someone's going to uh, be like, oh, I'm like, I'm out and they throw in their cars, it goes into slow-mo GoPro footage and Mm. it doesn't look great. There's a lot of grit to that camera. That makes you think, like, oh, this is happening in somebody's head that already happened previously, but that's not the case. So they're, they're just trying to push the plot along.
1: And the first time he loses, he's also so unconvincingly not upset. Like, yeah. he was just like, oh, shit.
0: I think that, like, that is, like, I guess, albeit an unsuccessful attempt to kind of, like, show that he's the sort of, like... uh Tired shell of a man
1: uh, And I think
0: it's that like you know we're not used To seeing that from Seagal But I think that's kind of supposed to be a thing It's that like like he's like Exhausted and worn out and he's just like He doesn't give
3: a shit So the rumor behind his character that it's set up In the beginning with the priest is that he is A former police officer Whose, <laughs> uh, whose Partner was shot and killed But he got away with a bunch of money Because he was dirty Oh And so that's why he's at this card game and he ends up playing for. And this is like the weirdest low stakes version of a Texas Hold'em game ever. So we see one hand go around and everybody just sort of tosses out. They lose. Um, There's no like clear winner. Then there's this bad guy, the sort of mafioso guy. You can tell because he's got slick back hair. And a suit. And he (laughs) said, and a suit. And he says he's going to go in for 20,000. And the girl next to Seagal says, oh, (coughs) too rich for my blood. And then Seagal goes, I call. And he calls. And then the dealer points out to Seagal that Seagal only has $6,000 left. <laughs> and he goes, You're 14 short, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, then the slick back answer goes, No, let him play. He goes, That's not how I run this table, sir.
1: Until you give me one chip.
3: So And so he he goes, No, let him play. I want to see how this plays out. So he throws. I think enough to cover Seagal's 14,000 mm. bet instead of making a side pod or something like that. I
1: think you just tipped the dealer.
3: No, because he says this should cover him and then he tips the dealer. Oh. And he goes, thanks, bud.
2: So how is this framed? Is it framed as like Seagal being like, oh, he's this endearing big guy. He's just bit out on his luck. Or is this like, is he being framed as like kind of like a cheapskate?
1: He knows that this guy is like the guy that comes every night and loses every night.
0: Fun fact about the uh, poker dealer, it's Matt Salinger, JD Salinger's son. And this is uh, not the first Seagal film that he's in. He's also in Black Dawn. And let's
2: see here. That is so sad. Yeah, weird, eh? JD Salinger, like, obviously, the author of Catch in the Rye. He died in 2010, so he still had
3: two more years to be disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, uh, Seagal goes all in on a $20,000 bet of which he only has six to cover with Queen High, I think is the reveal. And then the guy has like three jacks or something like that. And then Seagal gets up from the table totally disgusted either in himself or in the poker playing thing and starts walking up. And this is the thing that also is kind of unbelievable is he starts walking up a staircase of the back room of the lobby of a hotel. Mm -hmm. The guy who just called him out on having poor cards was like, uh, deal me out this one and goes and follows him. The two of them then emerge from the back of a factory on the ground floor, on the ground floor. Like, they've gone up 40 yeah. feet and then back down 40 feet. It's, like, it, it, it just, it's just poor shot matching.
2: It, it, actually, no. Like, uh, Seagal wanted to highlight it. He was very proud of the fact that he got M.C. Esther as the production designer. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, it's like one of those Room 237 things where it, he's playing a trick on your mind. And you don't even... Like, Danny can't actually run his tricycle that way. You it's don't a, understand it, man. You're, you've you been watching Steven Seagal's House of Leaves. So Seagal comes out and this guy confronts him and he says, yo, I've got a friend who'd like to meet you. And we're introduced to one of the first offhand comments that I think Seagal makes in this film in which someone else also awkwardly has to improvise. And it comes off somehow even worse than a curb Your enthusiasm scene because this guy isn't sure what to say. And so it's just caught off mic as Seagal is doing an action thing. He goes, I don't know who these guys are. As Seagal is like taking away and like bones are snapping. This guy's like, I'm not sure who this person is, yeah, which is realistic, weird. but also not the way action films are done. <laughs> <laughs> you don't talk over the bone snapping at all, but it happens in this. Uh, so they're mugged by two guys and the, the guy who's chasing him for the extra 14 grand that he knows Seagal is good for. Cause again, there's rumors going around that he's kind of a bad seed.
1: Is this before or after he shoots the lights out of the SUV?
3: Was it just before? So what does he do after?
1: So then, yeah, an SUV pulls up and he does nothing but just shoot the headlights out.
3: In a scene, in a shot that is reused at least one other time <laughs> yeah. in this film. Because, uh, again, Seagal's very frugal about the way he does. He's There are two at least two times in this film where he is approached by a giant SUV, sort of like a... Uh, uh what's, what were what those big rapper Escalade? Like it, It's like a big oh, Escalade sort rapper. of thing. Oh yes,
2: uh, Rob Ford's car. Rob
3: Ford's car, sorry. Yes, but it, it's the exact same he shoots and then it's the exact same sort of Escalade catching one little pothole bouncing down <laughs> for a second and then coming out and then having two uh, headlights shot out. It's very economical.
1: Well, you can't shoot four headlights out in one movie.
3: You can if it's an Escalade. I mean, it just has it has lights for days. Uh, and that's one of the great things that makes it so economical. Like the shoot of this film, which, oh my God, we're introduced to Blue. How, how, how does it work? The way the scene reads is this mafia guy was hired by Blue and associates to bring Seagal out of this thing. And then they were just also two muggers. And the two muggers, Steven Seagal... Seagal disarms and then starts shooting the escalade of blue coming up. It's, there's a lot going on in the scene in which Mm. like just two things should be happening, happening separately. And again, it's the first instance of which this is a Marvel origin story in which two things that could have both equally have been the origin story of this guy happen at the same time. It happens again at the end with the daughter running through the graveyard and Seagal um, blowing up the hearse.
1: Don't fault him for being a complex guy.
3: (laughs) But it's, it's, it's not a complex guy. It's a complex situation he found himself in, one in which you're wondering, like, now I'm thinking about it. And so there were two muggers not associated with the guy who was paid there to come tonight to plague him in texas hold to bring him outside they were just accosted by two muggers who were there independently of the escalade who was driving up to see steven seagal specifically but then blue gets out of the escalade and steven seagal takes the gun that he took from one of the two muggers which he's knocked unconscious and tells blue hey what are you going to do i've got this guy that you paid to bring me out of this place right I've got him with a gun to his head and you're and blue says you're playing the wrong game friend because I don't care if that guy lives or dies. So now you have four characters in one scene of which no relationships are established. Yeah. But- like I'm
2: mentally mapping this out with like corkboards, strings, <laughs> pins though. So like we would play a little bit of six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Uh, this guy blue, I was just reading up. He's played by Paul Calderon who coincidentally going back to an earlier topic co-wrote the original bad Lieutenant. Whoa. Yeah. So Blue did Paul Calderon. That's hilarious. He was also like the bartender in Pulp Fiction. Oh, wow. Character actor. Whoa. I know. Stuff comes full circle, man. Full circle.
1: It's like at this point when I started to be like, where it became so obvious that this movie is going to be, I mean, not unlike other movies, but (laughs) so much about how everything in the entire universe is about Steven Seagal's character. Like, everything meets at him. And then the next scene is when, like, you can really see that even the people who love him are, like, secret admirers of what he's doing, even though they're, like, about to blackmail him into shit. (laughs) But they also are, like, they love what he's doing. They're like, what? You've killed so many people. You, like, never get found. You're the best. You have so much money. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Yes, so Blue takes, uh, cajoles Seagal into an abandoned theater to meet an old white-haired man. Lance Hendrickson. Yes! (laughs) And Lance explains to Seagal that the two of them were both in the CIA and wasn't it always better when a member of the CIA could go into a mission and kill a man in broad daylight Or get the information out of somebody in broad daylight with a whole bunch of people around. And then just walk out of that place like there was nothing going on whatsoever. Uh, Foreshadowing somewhat a failure of Seagal's in like two scenes later. Seagal goes, "Uh, why are you coming here making me do these things? And it turns out that this old guy... Who works for, is he the old guy that everybody works for? Or does he also work for somebody unnamed? Anyway, there's a lot of money behind somebody who has bought up all of Seagal's old gambling debts. Yes. Or markers. Markers. markers, Of which I guess that's a thing that people did in 2008 before credit cards. For debt buyers. Yeah, like, wait, did this contribute to the recession? (laughs) And... Hospitals do it too. Mm-hmm. just like here's a mark it was yeah debt buyers i guess and so someone has bought up all seagal's debt because he is i guess in this film technically like an art student <laughs> and instead of 40 grand uh he he is three million or a million or i think it's three million in debt uh and this guy has bought them all up but the unlike regular debts these are more like bearer bonds in which if someone just rips them up they're completely done <laughs> Because that's how the credit system works. Equifax. What else is relevant right now? Harvey Weinstein. No. Hilarious. Remember the last time when we talked about Joss Whedon? That was four weeks ago. We were so young then. Things change. <laughs> uh, there's some like. I just want to go on the record and say, I don't think Harvey Weinstein is a feminist. I just want to go on Probably the right. <laughs> I'll preemptively go on the record and say, I'm not going to say
2: anything nice about Louis C.K.
0: Uh, there's some hilarious dialogue in this scene where uh, Lance Hendrickson is talking about like Segal's first hit. And in like in the span of 10 seconds, he uses the phrase extreme prejudice. So <laughs> I don't know if the scriptwriter like just finished watching Apocalypse Now or <laughs> something, but it's like like really, really awkward. In the same scene Segal also uses a phrase an offer I can't refuse. Yeah. Then Hendrickson quotes a Segal film in it and he's like these scumbags have gone not above the law but beyond it like it was insane.
2: Wait, so like that writer's just been slam jam in movies and like I guess Coppola so. flicks in the yeah.
3: 70s. It was like, really, really bizarre. I mean, it plays into my theory that Segal is doing his own version of James Bond, who plays the same character every single time across different ages and millennia. Mm-hmm. It's just the same guy going out on the same missions because it's always the same setups every it's, single time. I don't think the exact
2: opposite. It's the same actor playing multiple characters.
3: But the, all those characters are the same person.
1: I just think that's his depth. That's it. <laughs> No,
3: I think he's bringing a rich collage. There's nothing rich about. Firstly, I just want to There's see. a different M, there's a different Q every time.
1: <laughs> I think he thinks he's like making a new movie every time.
2: What do you think Timothy Dalton would bring to Above the Law?
1: My favorite part of that scene, maybe I'm getting ahead of it a bit because it's the very end of the scene, but he throws a paper airplane into the air. Just to like
3: Oh uh, yeah, that was weird. <laughs>
1: was just, like, yeah, the the white haired guy.
3: Yeah. Um. And is this does this mark the first time that Blue tells Steven Seagal, "Everybody, you're about so they set up Seagal to be a hitman, essentially, and you're gonna pay off your debt doing hits, but also we'll pay you a, a substantial amount on the side." Is this the first time that Blue mentions that? Everybody who he's about to kill also has, like, wives and children like Seagal does. Or not wives, but children like Seagal does.
1: Has he mentioned that more than once?
3: Oh, yeah. It's at least twice in the film. And it's a very odd thing where Blue clearly wants something done, but is also telling him all the reasons not to do something. Mm. Like, all these people... Right, yeah. And I think it's supposed to be more of, like, a Tarantino-esque sort of dialogue where it's just like, you know, we're just we're all just little specks orbiting each other. And each one of us has this tiny little part to play and we can't see who we are in this bigger thing, but you're about to kill the guy who in this film is set up to just be the worst man in the world by buying one piece of fruit, like speeding his car down a road, pulling to pull over to buy fruit from a small Asian woman's tiny little mobile fruit stand and then, just to make one sort of jerk-off remark, so Segal can come over and say, "Oh, do you know?" And this is my favorite little ad lib. He goes, "Oh, are you Japanese or Korean?" And she says, "I speak both." And I, and he, I speak. You spoke both. You, you, speak Wait. both. <laughs> I speak both too. Yeah. But he did not He initially didn't ask. Like, do you? Are you? He 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 asks, "Are you Japanese or Korean?" which I think doesn't wear super well in 2017, probably not so much in 2008 either. But uh, And then she answers with sort of like a lockdown answer, and then he's like opening it up with his sort of like white.
2: Uh,
1: I can do everything.
3: Shining yeah. armor sort he, of guy. Yeah. Does he do the little
2: head bow thing he does in? Uh... You know what? I, the... I'm not sure if he does bow. What was, oh, what was the Thailand one? Uh, belly of the Beast. Yeah, like if you did the little Belly of the Beast, like it's off screen and someone's like whispering, getting the movie's mixed up.
0: So there, <laughs> t- two, two things, uh, the, the the scene leading up to that. Seagal is driving to, I guess, find his target. And he has a Motorola clamshell mm-hmm. for a phone. Well,
3: in, yeah, and that's one of the... In
0: 2008. And then they show him supposedly receiving a telephone call, but you can clearly see the phone is on the personalized screen and it's That's like the weird thing, the settings in your phone and stuff like that. So that is a
3: pretty, so they've got it like flipped up phone. the way that you're supposed to now, which yeah. is sort of, you flip it up to uh, so you can speak into the phone without, you know, putting it up to your head, which you're not supposed to do. But uh, Seagal is talking to somebody as he's pulling up to this place but he's doing it in such a way in that he doesn't have to say anything. And the old white guy that he met the scene before gets to do a little bit more expository dialogue, which they just couldn't cram in beforehand. But it's so weird because it comes in like, it doesn't sound like it's phone dialogue. It doesn't sound like he's coming through the phone. It sounds like sort of the guy's still talking to him, even though there's a scene separating it where Segal shows off to his uh, daughter's stepfather that he's not a great guy anymore. Womp womp. But he's only not a great guy because Blue's holding a gun to his head but his daughter can't see that. He's pistol whipped. He's pistol whipped. That's
1: when he gets pistol whipped. But I mean this is what
3: I mean by this is the whole sort of uh, Marvel setting up like origin story sort of thing where it's like In every one of these scenes, or in every one of these stories, there's a point where someone has to disappoint the person who they really, really like and want to hold cherished in this world by the duty that they originally have to do. And it's all just sort of a, uh, you know, with great power comes great responsibility sort of thing. But with Sakal, he doesn't even have that so much of a great power. He's just mostly confused through this film. Yeah, I was going to say, like,
2: what kind of Marvel superhero defaults on a gambling debt? I'm like, oh, Ant-Man.
3: Yeah, exactly. That's what I kept thinking of through this. Although uh, this, uh, Steven Seagal's character is supposedly an alcoholic because his daughter has to pour out a giant thing of booze in one of the flashbacks, which is technically not a flashback, but also not one of the scenes that we see further on in the film. It's very confusing. It's very confusing. I guess Segal is uh, kind of trailing his
0: first target. And uh, basically, like we just see that this guy is a bad person. And that he's he treats women badly, and he's just like a bad criminal, basically, just sort of like I guess, uh, both for the audience to feel okay about our protagonist essentially killing him in cold blood, because his name is Bruno, I think. It's something silly, like yeah. it's a, a like a like a prototypical like, something killable goomba scumbag <laughs> uh, uh, name, and also I guess maybe like you could also say that like it's. Making it easier for Sagal to kill him, you know. And so um, during his surveillance, he goes to a bar and runs into uh, his love interest for the film, uh, Drea, and they end up hooking up. And uh, there's a hilarious line uh, the morning after where uh, he's preparing her like. The most like b- basic shitty breakfast imaginable. It's basically just like <laughs> these two like, like oh, fried yeah. eggs with nothing at all, and she's like, you can "Wow, cook. you cook?" Yeah. And <laughs> it, it's just like like totally silly. And I was just like, "This is the worst!" Like they they they, they couldn't put any effort in this. And then the gal who's me wrong, and he's like, "Actually, I don't cook. Any any man could fry a fucking egg." And I was like, "I don't
1: know, right, right pretty good before that though." He goes. I jerk, I clean, I do everything.
3: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But back it up a second. So in this film, Segal has to put his daughter to bed before he goes to track Bruno for the night. So he puts her to bed by carrying her to the couch that in his few scenes earlier, she was tucking him into bed and then pouring out his booze because he's such a booze aunt, blah, blah, blah. She puts her to bed on that couch, goes out, tracks Bruno at a bar, is accosted by a woman... Because he keeps watching a man across the way, the two of them get to talking. Seagal has gone to like a fancy, yuppie, upstyle bar wearing a bowling shirt of two red stripes on the outside, one white in the middle, and like fake, not even like I paused it. I paused the film on the actual thing. It's not even like Asian lettering, even though it's supposed to look like it. It's like uh, Dance Dance Revolution versions of uh, Asian lettering. She still makes out with him at this bar. He's then, like
1: the smoothest guy ever.
3: Because he's the smoothest guy oh. ever and just sort of encapsulates her into his own flab as he's doing it. Uh, well, it's and like then, watching a sea anemone. And then he takes her home and after their you know sexually charged banter and then Blue is revealed to be looking at them through the window mm. as they do sort of like a very sexy pose in silhouette. And then... The next morning, where is his daughter? His daughter, who he put to bed in the couch, meters away from where he's now serving this woman who he slept with the morning or the, the <laughs> evening before breakfast. No mention of her whatsoever at all. Like she's she's gone. Where did she to go? Say I hated the daughter character the whole time. The daughter character, like everybody in this film, not everyone. Some people were overwritten. She was underwritten.
1: She was like she laughed a lot about nothing, but then also was like emotionally adept beyond her years. But then
3: again, we're, we're at this point in this film where this film presents us with two possible er origin stories of why Seagal is doing something. One is, He's doing this for his daughter, so he goes out at night when she's asleep but still wants to be a great dad. And the other one is he's trying to get his life back on track and he has a woman in his law for the first time in a while. But the two of them, apparently in this film, are incompatible because there's no shot where he, you know, sneaks the daughter off to school and then gives this other woman who he's sexually satisfied so goddamn well because there's a weird <laughs> conversation between the two of them about what if she became a man. And Seagal would be jealous if she became a man. This woman is mm-hmm. black. Seagal would be jealous if this woman became a man and had a bigger dick than him. I don't
1: think that's possible.
3: And Seagal says, he, did, or the, the woman says, I don't think that's possible. And it's just... I made my skin
1: crawl. Uh, it was so bad. I... There was a, definitely like Segal wrote that line.
2: It, Yeah, I, I can imagine him ad-libbing that and then... In the actual filming, like, the, the take they had to cut out, there was just kind of five seconds of everyone on set just being very silent and uncomfortable. <laughs> it's like, okay, let's take that from the top.
0: One <laughs> funny thing that I noticed is the, uh, the mob boss, who's sort of his first hit, uh, the license plate on his Hummer 2 is DJ Roof.
1: Oh, I didn't notice that. And,
0: like... Uh, th- like his name isn't roof and there's no character named DJ roof. And it's just like, it's bizarre that like, uh,
1: it's also the worst character name ever. Yeah.
0: Like it's weird that they would get, uh, a vehicle with a corny vanity plate to use in your movie. If the vanity plate had no correlation to something in the film.
1: Yeah. it's It's almost like they were like, we need a vanity plate. And he's like, you're my cousin's a DJ. Yeah.
0: Do you
2: have any confirmation that that's actually a vanity plate, though? Or is he just kind of cursed by the state with that plate, just the random assignment?
0: I got to assume it must have been because, like, to have that spacing, because it was like D, like DJ space R O O M. Yeah. And so I guess we're probably getting to the part where uh, Segal has uh, been trailing him for long enough and he actually uh, executes on the hit. And uh, needless to say, uh Lance Hendrickson's oh, yeah. uh hype about him being able to g- go into a, an urban area with bodyguards and disappear without a trace? Not really. Because it's the most c- clumsy, silly thing where he just like like shoots up this place and it's just like like but he has
1: to make himself look like the good guy too.
0: Yeah. So it's definitely like the
3: least stealth thing imaginable. <laughs> yeah. Oh, also in multiple times in this film, uh Steven Skull Calls people bad hombres, hombres. Oh, ah. which again, uh, and it sets up this scene nicely where in uh, American Mafia are trying to sell secrets to North Koreans. Ah, yes. And it's like it just this film just keeps becoming what was outlandish when Obama was the president is now like <laughs> the most pertinent thing in the world. Bad hombres and North Korean secrets. Before that, I just have to call as a drunk loser.
2: (laughs) I I was reading up on the Wikipedia article and that's like literally the first line of the synopsis. He's just drunk deadbeat. I have to keep myself in the loop somehow.
1: (laughs) The drunk thing doesn't really ever come into play though.
2: Even though like she pours out his booze?
1: Yeah, I think that's the only reference to Uh,
2: So so he's just not stumbling around doing these hits. I guess he
3: has to be like...
1: Which would make uh, it a good movie, I think. (laughs) If he was drunk and then like kept missing or something.
3: It would be. I mean, anything would make this movie interesting. And I think today we're going to have to ask each other, what would you do to improve this film as opposed to what would you rate this film? Cause Dan is out of the loop. But, um, so Seagal goes to, again, surprisingly the back room of the hotel that they rented the lobby of, uh, also has like a very robust dinner menu, I guess, because they've expanded out a little bit farther in that same lobby because it's not, this scene is, it's a dinner in a restaurant, but the restaurant is only a restaurant because it's in a lobby surrounded by cubicle walls. <laughs> it's incredibly sad. And no mafia member would ever be caught dead doing these things. But then Bruno, the mafia member, uh, not only is he meeting with North Koreans to sell them secrets, because that's what mafia guys do, but he's also telling his waitress on one of the most important business deals uh, in his life. He's inexplicably saying, uh, Hey honey, why don't you come over here and give me a little kiss? Oh, you won't need to kiss me. I'm going to fuck you in the ass later. And it's just like such a weird escalation of where that man's character was. It's just like, if you had any sort of semblance of, we have some sort of sympathy for this man. Cause again, blue tells Stephen skull just before he goes out for the hit. This guy has a daughter. Okay. Uh, that's all washed away in yeah, like, a very... Uh, the
2: impression I get of this guy is that he watched just the Tom Cruise scenes in Magnolia. <laughs> it's like that's literally everything he's learned about relationships.
3: And so the guy... So Steven Seagal sits down and he says, Hey, don't like the way you're talking to our waitress. Could you apologize? And so our... Bruno says, oh, Sure, I'll apologize after I'm fucking dead. Or whatever, and then everybody attacks him. Steven Skull kills everybody. Just
1: uh, after to fuck her in the ass, I think, no?
3: Whatever. That's I mean, <laughs> here's the thing is like with dialogue this great, any attempt to quote it is just going to desecrate it, <laughs> right?
1: True. Yeah, that's really true. They put a lot of work into it. Uh,
3: so Seagal runs up, I think, the same set of stairs to escape as he did the first time in the <laughs> ca- separate ah! casino uh, to escape obviously doesn't go out. They just cut to him waking up the next day or to Blue coming by the next day to pay That's him an, off. Yeah, And Seagal's like, how did you know? And he goes, uh, Blue says, uh, what's his face? Always knows before everyone else. Although, I mean, if there was a shooting in a major restaurant in downtown, mm-hmm. I think that'd probably just be reported on the news and Twitter? on Twitter in
1: 2008. <laughs> was there Twitter in 2008? When did Twitter start?
3: I assume, how else did Obama beat McCain? I mean, really, hashtag look at the facts. I'm just, Unless you can't, because it's 2008. Oh, my God. Just
2: please, I, I just want to thank you for implanting in my mind the idea of Lance Hendrickson on Twitter. <laughs> oh. Oh, jeez. Wow, I'm getting... It's <laughs> like, wow, my old dial-up can never give me information this fast. <laughs> That's the extent of my Lance Hendrickson so far.
3: Uh, it's growing, and it's growing on me. Uh, so, what happens next? Does Seagal go to check out, uh, uh, try and get a background check on Blue? Mm. Possibly. No, I think it's a little bit later on. Yeah, he uh, starts casing
1: the guy.
0: What's the scene where uh, he gets attacked by those two dudes in the parking lot? It's like the first kind of fight scene that we get.
3: I don't remember. Is that. this another like, like unrelated mugging? Oh, yeah. So he's tracking another guy. Because he gets paid for the first hit. He gets a second yeah. hit. And then he's waiting in a parking garage for that guy, watching that guy. Two people come up to him. And again, in a confusing scene where these two people, these two guys uh come up to him. They say they're with the police and they try to shoot him. Seagal, uh disarms them. Of course he does. Although the, the first guy does get a good shot off on him. uh Not gun, but like punches him across the face, which is not something you normally see. Then Seagal tries to choke this man out as the man is confessing as to who told them about it. And is this part of the giant misdirect in which he tells them that it was Blue who sent them? And so Seagal's like, I know what I'll do. And he goes to a home hardware. This isn't in the film, but we assume it happens. He goes to a home hardware and picks up a box of matches and then goes to the most abandoned warehouse that he can find, which (laughs) coincidentally, if you look up the shots, is right next to the hotel he came out of, which was also a restaurant, which was also a casino. Right next door is an abandoned warehouse uh, because you can see the same rubble. And he just starts setting up matches like he did when we were watching A lawman. And that thing, (laughs) it was a tour de force championship for Seagal. In this one, not so much. Michael, take it away. He did light a couple in this one.
1: Oh, yeah. But somehow, like, there's no way he could have shot those matches and not hit blue as he walked away. Like, I don't think there was any way the angles would work out.
3: Yeah, Uh, I don't want to ruin it, but he was shooting blank, so there's no way he could (laughs) have (laughs) shot Like, or maybe...
2: Had Wanted come out this time, do you think Steven Seagal would have been practicing the whole bullet bending thing that they had in that movie?
3: What if I put one curve just before it goes through millions of curves? <laughs> that should do it. And Blue's dead. <laughs> well, my troubles are over. <laughs> Back to prison for me. Uh, I love Home Improvement. Anyways... One thing probably worth
0: getting to now is that uh, the other characters in the film, which I I thought was kind of an unbelievable dynamic because we have Seagal's former partner when he was a police officer who uh, kind of like, I guess... Did, did some stuff that he wasn't supposed to do. So Steven Segal didn't get in trouble. And so he was just kicked off the force instead of uh, like going to jail or something. And so his former partner is now uh, hooking up with his, with Seagal's ex-wife. Mm. And there's this weird dynamic where Seagal will kind of visit his ex-wife and she will assume that he is there to see his partner.
3: So I didn't. I didn't think it was the part. I didn't think he was his partner. Oh yeah, I thought Seagal's partner was killed in a thing that everyone assumed Seagal had embezzled money from, and this other guy said Seagal was on a stakeout with him, and then Seagal's wife married the other guy.
2: Or are we confusing it with Out to Justice, where his partner was killed in that?
0: Like there, there was some other dude that was killed, but like I'm pretty sure it was
3: his partner. All right. I mean, again, it's, they introduce so many different characters mm. and then just kill them off randomly. Oh, so it kind of preceded Game of Thrones in that way. <laughs> yes, but not in a good way. Like, not no, this is something, this is a teachable moment sort of way. Like so many of Seagal's films, like there are so many teachable moments.
1: You learn a lot of what not to do. I learned a lot
3: <laughs> about Flowers in the Patriot. That's what got me drinking tea.
0: One of my favorite scenes was, uh, I think it's the second time that uh, Seagal is forced to, to bail on his daughter because he's got to go off somebody. But uh, his partner, who, again, is with his ex-wife, uh, has his uh, Seagal's daughter in the car, and she refuses to get out. And so Segal kind of comes over to the window, <laughs> and he kind of just knocks on it, just kind of casually, expecting her to sort of respond, and she just, like, won't even look at him. And so he starts kind of doing these kind of, like, goofy knocks and making goofy faces. And she just, like, won't budge. <laughs> and, like, it's actually, like, pretty sad. And, like... It's, like
1: It was, like, a pretty good dad moment.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: yeah, Like, the way he was knocking on the window to be like, hey. Yeah. Where we rank so this funny? on the
2: scale of the Seagull dad moments.
0: Oh, man. Like, it, it, I'm glad you mentioned that, actually. Because, like, like, in this film, whether or not, you know, he's nailing this, like... uh. Tired, beaten down, washed up character, or whether he's just tired and beaten down in real life. Right. The the scenes where like he's like, uh, like incredible are all of the dad scenes. Like when he goes to the aquarium with his daughter, and like, like oh, every, yeah. it, it just like like children bring out the best in Segal. Like like he's just so believable. Like the this is like Except an energy
1: when he goes. What does I heart you mean? Like uh I hated that He was like what does the heart mean and she's like love and he's oh you think i'm that stupid
3: <laughs> right. that, that, was that works pretty well out of context <laughs> hey tony what does i heart you mean that sounds like it would um I mean, work pretty well in context
2: by which i mean for sorry,
3: uh our simpsons fans out there the uh steven Seagal trying to get the attention of his daughter in her stepfather's yellow Dodge Charger, mm-hmm. um, that he comes to drop her off in every single time, is just to say a fuck you. Which, is, why I don't, I also don't think that they're partners. But, anyways, uh, that is a qualm for the uh, the, the screenwriter to figure out. Uh, he's probably dead if there's any justice in this world, but, uh, the way Steven Seagal is knocking on the window is not in like a knock, knock, knock sort of way. It's in a playful sort of Homer Simpson at the end of the episode where Lisa is tired of being the daughter of Homer. So Homer starts acting like an ape and plucking her hair for things like that's the way he's knocking on the window and sort of like, I've forgotten the way that humans do these things. In just, like, a last desperate attempt. And if you think about it out of context as just a father reaching out to a daughter in the stepfather's car before the stepfather drives away and not in a film, it's so sad. So sad. <laughs> <laughs> and then guess us move on to
0: the second hit, which is uh, less straightforward because... Unlike the first hit, uh, the person who he's going to kill, they don't spend extensive amounts of time showing what a scumbag the person is. Uh, and actually, the the setting for the second it was kind of cool because it's like that that DIY bowling alley yeah. with all the like Chinese
3: gangsters. Where you had to yeah. just,
1: the guy had to roll the ball back to him.
3: Yeah, I thought that was that was kind of cool detail. But again, you can tell that was shot in the same location as. The abandoned theater that Mm. uh, he met. Like everybody in this world lives within like three levels of each other. It's a it's a very convenient uh place to be living if you're a super good guy or super bad guy. Fight choreography Uh, for that scene was great. mm -hmm. Fight choreography for that scene and
0: actually for this whole film, like as far as late period Segal goes, it's definitely
3: like head and shoulders above everything else that's not true the last 20 minutes the editing is incredibly sloppy i couldn't believe it like the gunfighting yeah
0: oh yeah it's terrible i just mean like that like that the hand to hand <laughs> stuff yeah. like it's just like like we've seen a few other films around this period where like they're editing around his physical inability and it really shows but like yeah. with this one like i mean he really seems like he's like kicking ass you know like like there's a few parts where like you know he's you know punching people one really like kick someone they go flying and like it actually seems like he's really like fucking dudes up.
1: I don't remember where it was in the movie, but I remember one fight where he some guy did a spinning kick at him and he just like stood still and that sent the guy flying
2: back. Yeah. 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 that's pretty sweet. Unstoppable force movable object. Yeah, yeah.
3: But this does this scene does have a very good setup, which is these bodyguards are uh, bowling and there's an old Asian man down at the end of the track who's setting up all the pins after they bowl and that that little touch is such a nice little wrinkle like that sets up a whole scene as to where these people are at uh, like probably around my Simpson fans again uh, Frank Grimes apartment who lived <laughs> above a bowling alley and below another but uh, this is probably the type that they were doing. So there are some people playing Mahjong and another a few people who are bowling. But it's like a manual bowling alley. And there's a nice shot of the, the old man rolling the ball back and it going over the hump and down and settling nicely. That was really nice. Mm. And Seagal, actually, this whole thing is pretty nice. Seagal is sent in to kill this one guy. Uh, he sees that the girl that he, he the guy he's sent to kill is fucking a woman. The woman is on top of him. She sees Seagal enter the room and he motions with his silencer pistol to get off. Uh, And so she does and she doesn't scream or anything like that. And he shoots him and goes and there's another guy that he's supposed to kill. Then Blue comes in, even though Blue was just supposed to witness this whole thing. And the two of them escape together. Uh, Seagal gets shot. Blue says, hey, you're going to want some some sort of anesthetist for... uh, whatever it is that you just got shot, probably some nitrous oxide. And Seagal says, no, I want to feel the pain. And that's the first little moment of, oh, we're seeing some character growth from this guy who before was passing out drunk in front of his nine-year-old daughter. So we're growing leaps and bounds. And I think it's at the end of
0: this scene where we discover that uh, his love interest is actually working for Blue and uh, Lance Henderson,
3: uh, the Mister Big character. Oh shit! That's true. Who would have suspected that the graphic designer who hooked up with the one man wearing a bowling, a Chinese bowling shirt, in an upscale bar was actually working with ulterior motives? Yeah, and uh,
0: an enraged Segal does his uh, classic when I'm talking to someone from a certain culture, I will talk like that culture. (laughs) And uh, earlier in the film, she makes reference to uh, like the being unhappy, working in situations where uh, men were in control or whatever she was doing, blah, blah, blah. And so when he sees that uh, Dre is working for Blue and Mr. Big, he says... Uh ain't no motherfuckers around here telling you what to do. ain't that right? And I'm just like,
2: <laughs> oh my God <laughs> oh, he sounds like Quentin Tarantino. yeah in,
0: in this film there's, there's there's like he's got kind of three inflections that he uses. there's just kind of like regular stuff talking to uh his former partner uh, Steve, right? the gray haired guy I think anyways, so he' got that uh when he's talking to his daughter again, also just regular voice uh when he's talking to drea uh he's got his like jive talking voice and then later in the film he starts doing that southern voice where he's kind yeah. like, uh, of oh, yeah. like I forget what the exact context is I think it might be for like Mr. Big or for like the more kind of like threatening tough guy stuff but he starts doing this like really heavy like cowboy sort of thing
2: wait cowboy or like cowboy or like I'm just a simple country lawyer like that, that kind of stuff no no so, no <laughs> I for one would be on board to see Seagal bring back Matlock <laughs> I mean that
3: would be amazing so his third target is his... Uh well, after this, he's so disillusioned with the group that is sending him on his missions to kill people that he's like, yo, guy who used to... Ex-partner, ex-partner, mm. hey, ex-partner, yes. uh, look up Blue for me. And yes. Then, or he says that earlier, and then he, the information finally comes in, and Seagal returns to the police precinct, which he used to work at, and that- he's not greeted... With open arms. So that, that, I found that scene and,
0: uh, this appears later on in the film. Uh, like, how is a disgraced police officer who's thrown off the forest allowed to walk around a police station like that? And it, like, it's not even that, like, someone came in and let him in. Like, it's just, like, seems like he's giving free because someone asked for his ID
3: and he shows ID and they're like,
0: yeah, go right ahead.
3: So he does have the ID badge and then his, he says, don't talk with me here. Let's go for a walk. And then they converse. And then the other guy goes just to shoot live ammunition a- ammunition down in the gun range. And uh, the second in command, the guy who sneers at Seagal when he comes in and says, what the fuck are you doing around here? Never thought you'd show yourself again around here. Attacks him mm. in a very ill-planned... Like, if you were to kill somebody in a police station... Just think of all the different ways you could do it. Your mind could go anywhere. There must be drugs in the lockup that you could do. There could be a gun that you are issued. There could be someone else's gun that you could just take on the sly and then kill. There's someone else's ammunition that you could just shoot. This man chooses just to leap out at Segal, a man at least a foot taller than him, and say, boo, I'm going to kill you. And Seagull throws him against a medical tray, and that flips over, blah, blah, blah medical tray that they have in the police station. Yeah. Where you go to get stitched up after you shoot yourself accidentally in the, in the firing range, because this is the other thing that happens is the, his ex partner, Seagal's ex partner, the stepfather hears, he doesn't hear anything as he's shooting, but he hears a scuffle going down like 200 meters away. And so he takes off his headphones. And then the next scene is just the guy going, what the fuck are you doing? Seagal? Blah, blah, blah. The cursed out. Is there anything more to say? Does the guy get killed or? No, they're no. just uh, pulled apart. Oh, uh, oh, wow. I
2: briefly processed that. Like, oh, just pulled limb from limb, <laughs> screeching, <laughs> dying horribly. He just
1: pushed them, basically. Just like a push, the table fell. Mm-hmm.
3: I think the table took more damage. <laughs> a lot of male ego in this film. Yeah.
0: Now we find out that he's in the next target.
3: So Seagal's next target is the, um, is his ex-partner who's now been, who's now the captain of the Precinct. Uh, and Seagal can't believe this. And so he goes once again to his uh, ex-wife's house, says, can I talk to him? He's out in the backyard. I guess they're throwing a party or something like that. Seagal's wife, as she's talking to Seagal, she's not only flirting with Seagal, but also revealing information that suggests that Seagal's ex-partner. Now, her husband is not the greatest man in the world, but he still doesn't believe it. So he leaves. As he leaves, the partner finds out that Seagal was there, figures out that Seagal's probably onto him, goes to the church and kills the priest because he's looking for Seagal, and the priest says, oh, Matt's probably in all the places you normally expect him. Gambling dens, whorehouses, all the places you expect a man like Matt to be (laughs) <laughs> and uh this is the big turn of the movie because we think that the stepfather is looking for Seagal for his safety. he stabs through the confessional
1: yeah how does that happen
3: into confessionals are very weak I It's just the grace of God that keeps them standing <laughs> so
0: the one thing about the scene that uh, really generated me was that like this it, it was such a like squandered opportunity, and this is just like like just seemed like, like in terms of like like film language and film editing and stuff like that, like it just seemed like such an like like how it should have played out seemed so obvious because they start the scene uh intercutting between Blue, uh Mr. Big and Segal talking. And uh Blue and Mr. Big are trying to convince Sagal with a bunch of evidence that Steve is actually like this dirty cop and he's this bad guy. And that's why you shouldn't feel bad about mm-hmm. killing him. At the same time, we see Steve talking to the priest who we know is buddies with Seagal. And he's clearly trying to get uh, information out of the priest. And again, we're going to cutting back and forth. And that like, like as the scene progresses, like there's a lot of tension because we're finding out all this stuff about how Steve is evil, and then Steve is clearly trying to figure out whether the police whether the priest knows any bad stuff, any incriminating stuff about Steve, and it it uh, you know, culminates in uh, Steve stabbing the priest. But here's the thing: oh, they're, they're cutting back and forth between the two scenes, but like just when it could get super, super exciting. The last ninety seconds of the scene, it's only the uh, scene of Steve and the priest. Even like they should have been cutting back and forth right to the end, right before like you know they would drop some like a big bomb and Saga would finally be convinced, and then we cut back and then Steve stabs him. But instead, it's like they're ramping up, ramping, ramping up, and then they just go back to the priest scene and leave yeah, us there for like true. ninety seconds straight, even though there's this back and forth, whoa, 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 and it's just like it's just like whatever happened to the fucking scene? And it's just like, <laughs> like it, it sounds like it, what could have been like the most dramatic and exciting scene in the whole film. And it seemed like they started off doing it just like completely a man in it. So yeah, it's, that was very strange.
2: I was imagining someone in the editing suite, just giving up halfway through the yeah, scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: exactly.
2: And I'm spent. They don't pay me enough yeah. for this.
0: <laughs> and so, uh, the, the thing I was talking about before about, uh, If Seagal is a a disgraced police officer, why is he getting access to things? So uh, there's the crime scene of where the uh, priest has just been, you know, brutally stabbed. And, you know, there's there's tape up everywhere. And they just let Seagal walk in after he shows ID. And
1: And take the cover off.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's like like insane.
1: Completely insane. But then he, right there in that moment, he's like, did you do this?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And then so his, his former partner Steve advises
3: one of his underlings that they need to arrest Seagal. The underling who bounced out and said boo to Seagal in the right. police station. <laughs> yeah. I will scare you to death, you six foot four man.
0: That they need to arrest him and just hold him for a sec. And then when they let him go, uh, Seagal will lead him to blue, which they do. And then this scene is hilarious. So Ooh. they let Seagal out of prison. And, Always a good choice. Uh, Steve and uh, the the underling proceed to tail Segal by driving at two miles an hour, thirty feet behind him. Like 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 a, a, a an extremely visually impaired child would be able to spot this tail. Like it's it's like laughably
2: bad. I think like. The- my my least favorite chase missions in Grand Theft Auto have like a higher standard for remaining <laughs> stealthy. Yeah.
0: So yeah, after this like again laughable uh, police following uh, Seagal scene, the this next scene is just like it, it, it's just like an absolute disaster. So Segal's just like like calmly walking down the street, and then out of nowhere we see uh, an SUV. Come like like super, super fast into the frame, Uh, and then it cuts to the police cruiser, almost
3: like it did before.
0: Two other times in this film where SUVs came in really close, and then so like the and it's weird because like the 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 shot of the SUV coming in, uh, it's like they sped up the frame rate of regular film, but it looks kind of all jerky. And then we cut to the police cruiser, and it's just kind of like not doing anything super exciting. It's just like taking a right turn. For (laughs) some reason it's in super (laughs) slow-mo and like, like, you know, it's not like, you know, you do a slow motion shot of someone doing a jump kick or like jumping off a roof of a building or something. But it's just
3: like, they're honestly, they have their turn signal. So, uh, I mean, anything past the point of Seagal uh, going to the church to see the father murdered, all semblance of filmmaking at this point just sort of drops off. Like it's, (laughs) It's incredible. There's it's- a
1: lot of, like, moments, too, where they have a scene that you don't know if they planned it to be, like, dramatic or something or if they just realized the scene was too long and then they just sped up the timing of it. I'm mm-hmm. just mm.
2: imagining, like, all of the key crew members just being gradually overcome with ennui as post-production <laughs> went on. And it's just, like, the editors giving up in the middle of it. So it's the directors, like, handling, like, basic editing scoring all this at once
3: i mean you're more right than you know because can we skip ahead to the end where it's uh, seagal and the is is there much more that we need to really cover oh one funny thing oh
0: so uh, there's a there's a there's a bad shootout scene you know we go into the details but it's just there's just like a bunch of dumb shit here's an interesting thing at the end of this shootout scene when seagal and blue take off did you guys notice that they knock over a fruit counter, and it's the fruit counter of the Asian woman from? The oh start. no! And like, like, like you're talking before the livelihood know, re- recycling uh, locations and stuff like that. Like, literally,
3: come on! It's the same fruit counter. What's yeah. ironic is that's a compliment in Korea, but it's offensive in Japan. And she knows both. <laughs> uh, anyway, so. The partner shows up to, I assume at this point, my mind was just completely bogged. Because, again, one of the crazy things about this film, uh, worse than any other Seagal film that I've watched, is the sound was the worst I've seen or I've heard in any Seagal film. It was incredible. Like, almost everything, like someone dropping ice into a drink is like, and you're like, it was just two ice cubes. I can feel it.
0: Or, like, even at the, the the shootout where Blue drives up, uh, before anyone takes a gun out, you hear gunshots. Mm-hmm. And the shooting hasn't even started yet. Someone is just driving. They, 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 you hear gunshots, and then you see people stop their cars
2: I mean, and get out. This is the first thing you learn, like, when doing audio mixing, that, like, it's shocking, like, how overpowering certain sounds can be, mm-hmm. like, Loading a whipped cream container with CO2. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean, these little things that you think would never come up in a normal audio mix overpower it completely. Anyways, the cops go to, is it the death of the, is it the funeral for the father? Yeah. For the, the priest, priest who's you know, been dead? Yeah, yeah. Which up. is weird because they're the only people who show up. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> never even thought of that. Actually. I mean,
2: like when you become a man of the cloth, you don't get to have a family.
3: I mean, that's true, but he was also he was nominally in charge of like a, a, a parish. Whole congregation, mm. like in a cathedral, which is where he was stabbed to death. In you would think there'd be a big movement on social media again, 2008, at least Facebook was around. You think like the parish should know
2: it's like, oh, where's Father Dan today? Oh, oh, no.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. Oh, sorry, Lord. <laughs> uh and so the cops the only people who show up to this priest's funeral are cops who are all armed with either like desert eagles or standard issue berettas or ak-47s and they're all like let's watch each other's backs and they're like yeah and then they all load a shot into their chamber at the same time and oh, what has to be as most cock happy scene I've ever <laughs> seen in film like just sort of like what would be the most awesome thing what if everybody had like a way to show their cocks to each other but they, they didn't have to show their so it wasn't gay so they didn't have to show their cocks but it was like yeah I'm with you bro <laughs> and so they all load their guns at the same time and you hear like <sighs> and so they all go off to attend a funeral in slow motion <laughs> Oh
1: my Every God. Every single one of them gets their own walking away from the huddle scene.
3: And this is the thing is like the guys that this, uh, Steven's galls old, uh, partner came with, he couldn't find any lookers in the group. So they keep <laughs> shifting to different odd looking people who have all been like, like people who you think, these guys probably aren't cops. They're people who were recruited off Craigslist that, for an ad that said, do you have a gun? Come to funeral. $20. And so they, they're all there and they're all like walking off into different directions. And then Segal walks up to his ex-partner completely unimpeded, even though everyone has every single angle because they all walk off in different directions yeah. in slow motion. Seagal just walks in between them, I guess. Yeah, without noticing them hiding behind gravestones. Yeah, and so Seagal just walks up to the main guy who moments before said, most important thing, you all have my back. <laughs> and then they all clicked their guns. And then it's and they like all a- walked off and no one was like, oh, I should check my peripheral vision. Nobody said that. And so Seagal just walks up to him. To be fair,
1: Seagal's a pretty small guy. That's hard to find notice in her. You know, because he wears like normal clothes that nobody else would. uh, Everyone wears those clothes. He's like really small and and
3: inconspicuous.
2: I am happy to hear he switched to bowling shirts though. I think that fit, they fit his build much better than his old kimonos did.
3: Only for that one scene. The rest, like, he's wearing a suit for this. So, the one detail about that shootout scene
0: at the end, which (laughs) I just feel like this is like one of those, like, it's insulting to the viewer that um, Segal gets shot, but he's okay because he's wearing body armor. Oh,
2: of course.
0: But he's the only character in the film that's wearing body armor. That, like, there's all these cops that are armed to the teeth, and none of them are wearing a vest, and it's only this, this deadbeat bum who, I just found that was like,
2: You kind of sum it up for yourself right there. There's a lot of them. There's one of him, and he's a deadbeat bum. They thought this would be an easy job. (laughs) No, they underestimated
3: Steven Seagal once again.
1: He did have backup. She was on the church or mausoleum roof or
3: whatever. Yeah, so the graphic designer was on the mausoleum shooting off people because they both came with backup. They tell each other as they meet in a secluded graveyard garden. uh, He's like, I came with backup, and a guy pops up from a gravestone. And then he gets shot and Steven's like, goes, so did I. And then blah, blah, blah. Things happen. And the nice thing, the, the beautiful thing about this scene is like, it could have been a great action scene. Oh, they lay out exactly like there's probably like 500 square meters where they're playing around with in terms of space. And there they sort of lay out where everybody's at. And then they completely squander it because they do a whole bunch of things that I didn't even know were sins in cinema. And one of the things (laughs) that I love that happens multiple times in this film is somebody is shot very close up doing something in slow motion. And a lot of times it's Seagal and you can tell he only did one take of this because it's like Steven Seagal in slow motion running and then fiddling with his gun trying to get the clip to come out. And then hiding behind something and it falling out or like him shooting behind his back in one take and then coming back, which was the thing that we saw in backwards motion before trying to trick us. But the greatest thing about this shot is they didn't have enough coverage that they had a bunch of they had to shoot this a bunch of different times. And so what happens in slow motion in one shot, which is Steven Seagal shooting behind like a mausoleum. He shoots and shoots and shoots and then he goes to reload and then it switches to sort of if Steven Seagal was 400 meters away from me and I'm shooting with like a very close up lens so I can get him completely in focus. We then pull back to 200 meters away and there's another guy who's also shooting but Steven Seagal is still in focus in the background, four hundred oh. meters away. Oh Jesus! And so we do. We do four hundred meters away. Steven Seagal in slow motion, emptying a clip and trying to reload it clumsily. And so that's in slow motion. And there's then a we train
2: cut. coming from Albuquerque at two hundred miles.
3: Away. <laughs> and then we cut to two hundred <laughs> meters away, where this guy with Steven Seagal in clear view in the background is just in like, is no longer in slow motion. And so you see how stupid Steven Seagal looks as he's trying to get the clip out of his gun in the background of another scene that's shot. Like (coughs) to their credit, they kept it continuous. Like it all happens. It all makes sense. Sort of linearly. It just looks so dumb because you see actions that happen in slow motion, then happen in regular motion, and it just looks like cavemen trying to figure out how guns work. I mean,
2: you help make that the most sense it possibly could have made.
3: It was so bad. So Because you have men die in different rates of motion. 24-48, 24-48, 4 Just let him die. As silly as <laughs> shootout scene
0: was, and as... Painful As it may be, the viewer is rewarded with uh, possibly the most amusing piece of dialogue that uh, Seagal delivers in his entire
1: career. Before that, though, the girl does send his daughter right into the gunfight.
3: That was yeah. super <laughs> yeah. weird. Yeah.
1: Go see your dad. By the way, you might die because of doing that.
3: Yeah, so the, his love interest has just fought off one person as Steven Seagal is fighting off multiple people. His daughter has gotten away, meets up with the woman who, again, in this continuity, have not spoken to each other There's at something. all because she snuck out the door before this woman woke up. She says, go see your dad. As she's saying that, active fire is heard in the background. And this woman says, go towards sure. the light. Give up on life. Mm. (laughs) So this girl, Stephen Seagal's daughter, runs to see honestly what would be a horror (laughs) image in any other film is turned into this triumphant ending (laughs) of this one. You're going to be really happy that dad's got money now because we're going to need some therapy lessons. (laughs) I mean, you're so close to the mark. It's amazing. Stephen Seagal watches Stephen Seagal's wife's new lover his ex-partner die and he dies in one of those ways which even though he's sitting on the ground he sort of jumps up a little bit when he dies before he falls over into the ground as if like oh I had a heart spasm <laughs> through the heart that I was just shot through oh I just got shocked go, by that oh, uh, now. sorry Michael I don't want to step on this say it Ah, so <laughs> uh,
0: Matt has been uh, fatally wounded and so he kind of, like, slumped against a hearse. And, Fitting. uh... Oh, sorry, Steve, Steve. And so, uh, Matt Segal comes up to him. And he's like, you want to be or Buried. <laughs> so Steve goes, buried. And then, uh, Matt basically, uh, blows up the hearse. And the guy's engulfed in flames. Not and even that. And then he that. yells... You cremated now, motherfucker.
3: Not even that. It's cut in such a way that the girl comes running down the hill. To to see the dad being blown up. Not only to see the dad blowing up, but Steven Seagal takes up Matt and bursts through the back of the hearse to load him. He uses Steve's dead body to break through the back window of the hearse to load (laughs) Steve's dead body. And then he shoots the fuel tank and just says, what, cremated, motherfucker? You cremated now, motherfucker. And you can tell it's that cool. they didn't have any ADR on this film because it sounds like there's a fire raging in the foreground of yeah. this shot. You can barely he- hear Steven Seagal, <laughs> and it immediately cuts to the shot of Steven Seagal's daughter bursting into tears because from her point of view, she just saw her father and her stepfather erupt into flame. Yeah. And then, so there's a shot of her sounds bursting like... into tears, as there rightfully should be, because this is insane. Yeah, it sounds like Jeffrey Dahmer wrote this script. And then Seagal runs through the flame, and she immediately turns from tears to laughter as she sees her her father run through the flame and pick her up and go, oh, baby, it's okay, blah, blah, blah. Was there anything funny about what he said there? I think it was just... I don't think so. I think mean, it was just nothing, whatever. Well, I'm not drunk today. <laughs> <laughs> and then it goes to the two of them at a, an aquarium, as happened in the beginning of the film, because she likes aquariums, because she, something about she can be herself there. And she says, can I get a dog? And he says, if your mother says it's okay. And then she says, it's good to have you get back, dad. Then they walk off into the sunset, fade to, oh, no, we're not done yet. Looney Tunes-esque. He's praying down at the front of the altar where his old pastor had just died. And who is it now that is the new Blue? (laughs) His old flame comes, delivers a manila envelope, just like Blue did before Blue was killed in the shootout. We should have mentioned that. Uh, and she, the graphic designer that Steven Seagal slept with, is delivering his messages to him about people he should kill, and so Steven Seagal is still part of it. But then, the last shot in the film, Steven Seagal goes and takes the never mentioned for sale sign off of his lawn and walks it indoors. And just as he's about to get on the first step up into his porchway, the shot the the camera crew did like a time lapse all the way around his house (laughs) and back again. And when they get back all the way around his house, Steven Seagal is closing the door. And it's like, fuck you, you're not getting in here. No one knows what's happening next. It's bizarre.
2: It was strange.
3: Credits. It sounds
2: like this movie just kind of underwent entropy as it went along.
3: (laughs) That's a very good way of describing
2: it like Using that term nowadays, it's how I describe the ending of the new Twin Peaks.
3: <laughs> mm,
2: mm, mm, mm. Like, I will say, once again, regrettably, having not seen this movie, this was a hell of a ride to have it described to me.
3: Somehow, it took longer than the film itself, and the film feels like it's going on forever. I loved it the first time I watched it, the second time, didn't think it was ever going to end. Oh, I'm glad you watched it for me. <laughs>
2: I don't have many questions, actually. It's just like, it sounds like a noble redemption story of a deadbeat becoming his own man once again and earning the respect of his daughter through murder.
3: I mean, beat by beat, if you're just to give the bullet points, it is Ant-Man. God, you are right. Which is interesting and which is what made me think of throughout this film that it is a Marvel superhero tale because the entire time He keeps reporting to a group that is never revealed, like their full power or who they are exactly. They're just Mm. said, "You have this vice; we can exploit it. You're going to do this for us now." Blah blah blah. Here's your kimono. Although, (laughs) but the thing is, it, it just this film throws so much at you in a way of saying, if anything, if any one of these catches the viewer in the right way, we can do a sequel. And it's interesting to see it in that context because there's so much setting up a new one and there's so much of just being like, like they do give you so many different like, oh, are you interested in characters who have a daughter that they want to protect? Or are you interested in guys who are trying to get their life back on track? Like it's, there's so many different ways that you can take this film. And even the ending, he's not even forced to choose. It's left ambiguous whether he gets back with the, mother or whether he is still with the woman who he's sleeping with before.
1: But we do know his house is no longer for sale. It's
3: no longer <laughs> for sale. He doesn't need to sell it because he has money now. Because he's 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 relegated to murdering people within uh within the tri-state area. Yeah, he has a full which apparently job. is quite lucrative.
1: He has benefits for sure.
3: I mean in two years if they film a sequel, they could all just be about Bitcoin. <laughs> uh and Steven Seagal has bet all of his... Uh, for
1: sure, like, assassins use Bitcoin now.
3: And you're saying this with the authority of...
2: Uh, an assassin. Like oh. the, Tony has a point there, because I remember when p- words start getting out about Silk Road a few years ago, you know, like the kind of online black market <laughs> that only used like, Bitcoin for its transaction method. Like, there was, like, a subsection for, like, hitmen, basically. Though I imagine that they were all undercover
1: cops.
0: (laughs) Just trying to catch each other. So, final thoughts on Pistol Whip. Tony.
1: I hated it so much. (laughs) I hated it so much. It was from, like, immediately I turned it on and the first scene is the foam gravestone getting blown up. And I was in it. I was like, I'm watching this till the end. But no part of me enjoyed the movie except I enjoyed hating the movie. But I would hmm. never like I'd like enjoy I, I liked watching the movie for the sake of hating it and hating Seagull and learning about his tiny penis complex. <laughs> but other than that, it was a bad movie.
2: You have, like me to get like riled up for something, like you need to like fuck somebody up or yell at them. You just watch this movie first, gets in the mood. <laughs> yeah.
3: Riley? Ah, I loved it the first time around because I didn't realize how long it was. I think I was cleaning my house at the time and I just look over and be like, ah, oh, shit, that that's dumb as heck. And like you look over in one scene, Steven Seagal is like, I can't pick up my daughter today. In the next scene, there is a literal bowling machine made man again. And you're like, that's interesting. That's a new take on a very simple thing people haven't done in a while. Like you look at uh, Edgar Wright films and it's like, Oh, he takes a different perspective on uh, the way everyday things are done. And you're like, Oh, didn't realize going to work was actually that interesting. If you think about it, but with like the Asian man who rolled back your bowling balls, you're like, Oh, this is sad. I don't want this ever. It's like, this is why they made this is why we came up with robots to do this. So you didn't have to make back alley bowling alleys. <laughs> Two alleys, double the alleys. Um I hated it. This was the worst. Did you say that? Am I quoting you?
1: I, I said I hated it, but you're also allowed to hate it.
3: It's yeah. It's amazing how many little elements they introduce that none of pay off whatsoever. Dan? Sorry, Michael. Please go with Michael first. (laughs)
2: Uh, (coughs) That's a good summary.
0: Yeah. uh, It definitely was not an enjoyable watch, for sure. Although, like, the the things that made it so frustrating, uh, unpleasant, I don't want to say unwatchable, but just, like, something that I would not want to watch again was that, like, there actually were good elements in it. And that they either just went nowhere, or it was these sort of like little specks of good shit uh, intermingled with all the other bad stuff. So, for example, like um, you know, we're we're always talking about Steven Seagal's invincible in every film, and there's no sense of uh, drama, mm-hmm. no concern that he's going to lose. And in this film, it's like he's he's a loser, you know, and that like he's he's like, you know, broken and he's not this, this infallible sort of guy. And unfortunately, like it ends up being, you know, they had this shallow, corny, one dimensional thing. And that like ultimately it's it's like, you know, the side of Seattle that we've never seen before, but that narratively just goes nowhere. And it's, it's totally pointless. There's great fight choreography, but then there's. Some disastrous, like some of the, some of like, you know, we we make fun of the, uh, you know, sound design being bad, whatever the, it, like, uh, continuity errors, whatever, whatever. But I mean, there's some scenes that are like some of the worst stuff we've ever seen. Um, so yeah, like, it's just, it, it's just kind of like a frustrating watch. And I mean, like, it also looks kind of ugly at times. Like there's <laughs> just like a lot of like really ugly things in it. So yeah, like, I mean, I, I definitely would not recommend someone watch this. Uh, it's one of the worst ones, for sure. Uh, it's unfortunate because, like, it, it, it could have been an opportunity for
3: Seagal to, like, reinvent his career. Like, Sounds like it's really? three out of 15. Uh, Dan, <laughs> as a blind man lost in the woods, someone else approaches you and describes to you mm. in detail, <laughs> as we just did, mm-hmm. the plot a forest. of Pistol Whipped.
1: Which is inside of a lobby. And we
3: say pistol, but kind of think of like pussy, because that's that's what we're talking about. Oh, is that what they for. were going for? Oh, that's a shame. Uh, uh,
2: my impression of this movie is that they wasted Lance Hendrickson. <laughs> a tremendous talent. Paul Calderon for that matter, who's
3: the man in the woods told you it was Lance Hendrickson? He, he was a very
2: knowledgeable man. <laughs> he may have been Lance Hendrickson.
3: Dan, do you want to give another shout out to your podcast? you have a very nice horror podcast.
2: Yes. Uh, so I've recently launched Outside of a Dream, which is a podcast focusing on new horror, specifically new horror movies that have come out since 2010. I released the first episode a couple weeks ago. It's about Jennifer Kent's The Babadook. And I will actually be releasing, uh, you know, at the time of this recording tomorrow, the second episode, which is about The Witch, the debut film of uh, Robert Eggers. Uh, so you can expect that up online this is going to be probably released a little time now. It's going to be released on October 12th. It was released. I'm speaking in past tense about something that is yet to come. And yes, so I'm going to start out bi-weekly.
3: And one of the things I have loved about your Facebook page is I myself am a scaredy cat. I hate watching scary films. Each day, you give us a little tiny synopsis of why—at least for October—you're giving us a little yeah. synopsis of your 31 horror films. Yeah,
2: 31 days of Halloween is what the hashtag is called. I'm not hashtagging it for the Facebook group, but the same difference. And so, yeah, each day I do a write-up on like a film that I think is either very scary and/or fits the Halloween groove. I've been doing mostly horror so far, but I'm going to switch it up with some non-horror stuff that still really you know fits the mood of the season. And so, yeah, uh, today, that's to say October 11th, I just posted about William Friedkin's The Exorcist, which, while it is not the scary film, the scariest film ever made as it's been marketed as, it is still one that is very near and dear to my heart.
3: And the first ones that you marketed that I've actually seen. <laughs> Whatever. We haven't even decided on the next film. You'll you'll discover in two weeks. We'll post it up on the Facebook
2: page. What is certain is that I will watch it this time around. <laughs>
3: This has been Flock of Seagulls. I'm Riley. Michael. Michael. (laughs) That was Tony, kind of. And Daniel. And Daniel. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, We'll be back in two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)